All right, guys, welcome to Property Profits Podcast. I'm your host, Bryce Kaminsky, filling in for the fearless Dave Dubow. And if you've ever wondered how a former hotel manager ditched the nine to five, mastered the art of high-end real estate flips, and is now on a mission to create a real estate empire that's anything but passive, today's guest, Nathan DeWint, is here to spill the secrets of his success from hyper-focused buy boxes to scaling a business from four to 12 flips a year. Nathan's journey is a blueprint for anyone looking to break free from the traditional and embrace the entrepreneurial path. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thrilled to have you here. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no no problem. Um, I'm always interested in the luxury flips. So uh, I know a couple of people in my market who have dabbled in that game and um, you can win big and you can lose big. Uh, luxury flips, you didn't start there. So tell me, where did you get your get your start in real estate? Yeah. So like you had mentioned, I used to be a hotel manager. And so it just kind of became a natural progression that every couple of years you you get moved somewhere else. And so I was moving around a lot. Um, you have to do that in order to, to work your way up in the hotel business. And so every time I would move somewhere, I would buy a property, um, rehab it if it needed it. Um, and then when I would move on to the next job, into the next city, the next state, I would then rent that out. And so once I saw the tax benefits of owning real estate, I thought, oh man, this is this is where the ticket is. And so the idea was to continually build real estate in the background while holding my nine to five. Um, and then as it got more and more lucrative, and when I sold my very first rental that I had ever had in Colorado, um, I went, oh man, like I made 60 grand on that. It was all tax-free. I rented it out, made $30,000 in passive income that entire time that was tax-free. Um, and when I saw that, I the light bulb kind of went off and that's when I started my transition out of hotels um, and just kept building real estate on the side until it hit a point where I wasn't making what I made in hotels, but um, I'm a huge fan of of not holding your nine to five to, to grow your real estate. I know that's kind of controversial to a lot of people. They say have a side hustle until it makes more than what you currently make. I, I disagree with that. I think once you, if you're taking a 40 or in my case, it was a 60 to 70 hour week. If I can dedicate 60 to 70 hours to real estate, there's no way that I'm going to fail. And so it kind of took the markets dictating that for me. COVID was a huge thing to push me into full-time, never looking back. But once I did, um, everything ramped up so fast because now I was focusing 60 hours a week on real estate instead of five or 10. And I mm. don't think that this is an industry where if you're focusing five, 10 hours a week on it, that you're really going to scale it to a point that you want it to get to, 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 you know, get the wealth that you, that you've uh, had your eye on. So. Yeah. There's a couple of thoughts. I always say like the nine to five transition is when it gets in the way of your other business, then it's time to start thinking about, you know, stepping out of your nine to five, but you know, you touched on something interesting there and you said, well, if I gave myself 60 hours a week in real estate, how could I fail? But you're not the average, you're not the average bear, Nathan, because a lot of people quit their nine to five and still only put in five hours and think it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. So you do have to go to work on whatever it is you do in this world. So you end up, um, COVID has you, I guess, because the hotels are not really a thing. You know, hotels were very, very strange. It's shared accommodations during a, a pandemic. So did that have you, did you just decide, hey, I'm out and you walked, you walked off and, and, and really dived in or did they kind of, did the thing force your hand in that way? Like, did the situation just say, you know, enough's enough? It, it was kind of both. So I had, I had left hotels 
I was focused on real estate. And then I got a call from a headhunter um, trying to get me back into the game. And I said, no, you know, that's in my past. Then the salary that they offered was something I couldn't say no to. And so it drew me back in. But honestly, from day one, when I stepped foot on the ground in the new location in Southern California, I went, this was a huge mistake. Um, and so I was already trying to work myself back out. I had already known this isn't going to you know, bode well for my future, but I didn't mm-hmm. want to let anybody else down and, and set them up for failure. So I went, I'm going to, I'm going to give them six months. I'm going to set everything up. And then that way I can walk away. Well, in month four, COVID hit and it kind of did it for me. So I was already on my way out. I had already made the decision. So it was both. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, once COVID hit, it went, we're making the decision final for you. Now you can head back to Texas. And so I did. And then that's where it took off. And so I know back to the previous question you had asked, I think it's really important. And I kind of leave this out when I'm talking to people a lot, but um, you kind of asked, if you, you didn't start here. How'd you get into luxury? I found that when I first started flipping and renovating, I was doing it like everybody else did in, you know, first time home buyer, median home price range. And I kept over renovating properties, spending too much money. Yeah. My profit margin started to shrink. And I went, man, why, you know, why is this so hard for me to, to do the minimal amount and, and get a higher return? And I went, well, because I was raised with a general contractor as a father who only did high-end homes in Southern California. And so mm-hmm. I went, well, that's why. I've been around this since I was 12 years old. Um, I know what high-end looks like. It's all I know. And so instead of fighting my own personality, that was kind of the number one thing. I went, that's what I want to do. And that's what helped me make the leap was my skill set is geared toward that. So that's where I should go. And so even if you don't want to do luxury, I encourage a lot of people that I talk to, of whatever your natural skill set is, don't fight it. We like to fight things to fit the box of what every other entrepreneur or investor is doing. And mm-hmm. I always tell people, don't do that. For me, my background was luxury. It's all I knew. Um, and so once I pivoted to that, then I started hitting it out of the park and I went, oh, got it. So it is scarier. It's higher numbers, but um, like anything bigger else in real estate, bigger, bigger renovation, bigger budgets, longer timelines. But like we were always taught when you first get into investing, it's just another zero. And once you capture that, it's just another zero. It's all the same thing. It's it's same with, I still have hesitation in doing multifamily. When I look at people taking on 400 unit properties in my head, my first reaction is kind of being timid. And then I remind myself, hey, it's just another zero. And when mm-hmm. you look at it that way, then it's easier. So um, sorry, long-winded way to get back to your first question. But yeah, no, definitely like the luxury flip thing. There, there's something that happens that people have like a natural like internal congruency. They're like, if if you grew up with the front door having a brass handle and a silver lock set, when you flip your house, you might overlook that detail when you're finishing your flip. You're like, what's the big deal? My house growing up had a silver lock and a brass handset, so I'm gonna overlook that piece, but you know, where you come from and, and your attention to what is normal dro- drove you to the luxury flip thing, which is really cool. And also, um, you probably get the budget that you want to feel good about. I mean, do you end up do you end up over renovating in your luxury flips? So yes and no, sometimes I will. But what I what I always tell people, the difference is in luxury, you cannot over renovate. So I'll go over budget. Yeah. I'll do things that I maybe shouldn't have done. But you get that back. You get that back at appraisal. You get that back in offers over ask. Um, you you get that money back because people that are in the high end space and I, and I'll make a key differentiation here in a second. But people in that class will pay for the higher finishes. Mm. So in the median class, you might over renovate a house that's a three hundred fifty thousand dollar ARV, 
and it's a $375,000 house. Well, the people in that market and in that neighborhood are looking to pay 350. So you won't get it back out. But when I'm selling a house and in South Texas, my focus is 750,000 to a million and I'll go up to about 1.2. Anything higher than that is a different realm. Um, that I'll get into here shortly. But if I'm if I'm over renovating a house that I think, hey, is worth 850 and I take it up to 900, I'm getting offers at 925. So if I do over renovate it, like I put pools in a lot of my homes um, mm-hmm. and people will tell you that all the time. Hey, you don't get your money back when you put a pool and it's a wasted expense. They come to Texas. Yeah. Come to Texas and see. Yeah. But when you put that in and, and I've got my budgets down pretty low where I can do a plunge pool, for about 35 grand. Um, and I can do a traditional gunite pool for about 50. And mm-hmm. so every appraiser will tell you, you don't get that money back. Well, I can tell you based on experience in the higher end homes, you do. If I put a pool in and it's a $50,000 pool, I'm getting a minimum double the value every so time. Just, just go to the Google satellite and you'll realize, you know, take a look for people at home who want to understand that go to go to any town or city in Texas and find the cheapest neighborhood and you'll find above ground pools, the circles, and you go to the <laughs> most expensive neighborhood and you just satellite over and it's nothing but bigger and bigger and bigger pools. So while that advice about pools, like if you're in like Nebraska or Kansas city or something, make pools can sometimes make a buyer hesitate, but in where they're like California and Texas and stuff, and even in like Georgia and places where it gets hot, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, especially, you know, what's interesting is he nailed it because the thing in the luxury flip is it's like a status symbol. They may never even go in it, but they got it. Mm-hmm. You know? And it shows well. It photographs well. Well, know? yeah, it's like a resort. They want to. They they may never go in it, but they're definitely going to sit around it and and have a guy to come and clean it. So, yeah. um, and I like what you said too. It's like if you go over, if you press into a three hundred fifty thousand dollar house to for three seventy five, say you like put that tile in that you really want and. You fall in love with the house a little bit. You're not going to get the juice back out, but if you press on 850 to like 900, you will get 925 because the people in that range recognize, oh look, it's that type of tile. It's it's that type of um, particular shape of tile in the kitchen. Like they're watching. It's in that magazine that they were reading on the airplane. Like it's a whole different. It's a whole different um, attention to what's the word not craft but finish it's a an yeah. attention to finish where it's not just about how well it's done in the 350 range but also now what you've actually put in you know how well the floors were installed super important at 350 and also at 900 but now it's like what was installed mm-hmm. and how can i brag to my friends about that floor you know what is it is it imported some from somewhere this that and engineered this so um how many of those luxury flips are you turning in a year these days? So when I first got into it, it was one at a time. I was doing two to three. The average profit margin on the ones that I do is about 140000 So I didn't have to yeah. do more than that to still make a decent living. Um, obviously, you want to make more and more and grow and grow and grow. And, and, yeah, if and you scale. can handle it, you know, scale it out. Yeah. And so um, I had a shift in a lender that now offers 100% loan to cost. And that kind of changed everything for me. And so now I've got four going right now. Um, and so that's they're where financing that goal... the whole they're financing the whole thing The buy the, finance, the, rehab. Like the, the lawyers, the rehab, the holding costs, everything. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll maybe come out of pocket. So I used to on a, on a purchase of say 50,000, I'd have to bring 120,000 to the table and mm-hmm. then have to cover the rehab 140,000 out of pocket. I could still take the draw at the end, but I'm still looking at 350, $360,000 that I've got to have at my disposal to do it. Now with that lender doing hundred percent LTC, I'll close on a $515,000 property like I did last month. And I gave uh, 9,000 in earnest upfront to the wholesaler mm-hmm. at closing title sent me money because my closing costs were 5,200. So they had to write me a check for almost $4,000 at closing. And that's the difference. And so now all I have to do is cover the rehab. So now when I'm putting in money for the hundred, 150,000 in rehab, that's the only expense I have per property. So now I can really, really scale. And then by mm-hmm. the time I'm done with that work, I take the draw anyway. So my money's only out for a two month cycle. Then I take the draw, get that money back roll that into the next one and the next one and the next one. And I've got them all concurrently going, but about a month apart. Um, and so that is the thing with, with luxury and at least my personality, again, of not fighting your own personality. I can't multitask. Um, when I multitask, I've got four projects going. I focus on one for three days, then the next one for three days, then the next one for three days. And for me, that's multitasking and that's getting them, you know, going concurrently, but I cannot, for the life of me, actually multitask. I don't think a lot of people I jump from property to property to property all day. Yeah, like you're concurrently you're trying to manage four at the same time. And and I am a firm believer that that's impossible. You're literally just shifting your focus. It's and how quickly can you shift your focus from one to the other? And can you do that all in one day? For me, I'll spend one whole day. And that's how I schedule my time is, okay, on Tuesday, all day I'm in New Braunfels. Wednesday, all day I'm in Canyon Lake. Thursday, all day I'm in San Antonio. And that's how I compartmentalize my schedule to be able to do multiple projects at a time. So yes, I can do them all at the same time, but to to think that I can drive, if I drove to all of my properties in one day, it'd be 350 miles. I was just so going to say, because I remember when I was when I was flipping 12 properties at the same time, and these were like lower median under the 200 range. They're all over town and it's not, you know, it's not a huge market that I'm in, but um, wake up, get to the office, get in the car, meet the contractor on project one. And this might only be like a part in the pipeline where I have like seven going. And even seven, it's like 20 minutes there, 20 minutes in, 20 minutes out, 20 minutes there. And the day is done, you know, and listening to the way you're doing it, it's like, I probably could have pushed my projects by just giving each of them a day um, instead of giving each of them 20 minutes, which didn't actually like, because to break it down for people, like when I hear that, I think, okay, that's a cool idea. But once I go and look at the house and walk around, what then do I spend the rest of my day on? Yeah. So I'm, I'm highly active. So I have found in luxury and I know we kind of talked about this earlier um, off camera, but I'm, I'm very active in my business. And so I'll be there where if, if I'm tearing out a load bearing wall in a two story house, that's a million dollar home. You can Mm -hmm. bet I'm going to be there for the entire thing. Um, As much as I trust my contractors, you got to check what you, what you expect. And so I'll go in there. Site supervisor. You're not 100% hands on it, but you're standing there with the coffee going, uh, looks good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll I'll go the next step. Like, cause I, I will be involved in it where I trust my framers. They know what they're doing. But it's not there, but that's on the line. It's mine. And so I'll have my engineers come out and I get, you know, um, scope letters and letters of completion so that they're signing off and taking liability. But even when you look at those letters from engineers, they're very skirting when they write their 
assumption letters you know they'll still stamp yeah they'll stamp it but they're still saying i'm approving the design but i'm not approving of the workmanship or the craftsmanship so if it's not installed correctly then i'm not taking responsibility it's on the contractor which then puts it on me um and so i'm there and so if if i see something that's off or um i see something like a jack stud is only one and it should be two because Mm -hmm. of the load bearing that we're doing with two lvls over 21 foot span you need two jack studs, not just one. And so yeah. I'll see that they'll frame it with one because that's what they're used to doing with normal headers. And then I come in and go, nope, add another one, add another one. Yeah, look so, at the plans. Here's the engineering drawing. There's two, let's go. Yep, that or screw patterns with construction with um, um, screws or nail patterns. They're they're called out on those plans. And a lot of times those guys will just sit there and they're just boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, guys, it says 12 inches, every 12 inches offset to make triangle shape. And it's things like that, that no matter how good your contractors are, even if you go over it with them on the plans, like I do, they resort back to what they, they know. And for them, it's every 16 inches, they put six of them in a vertical row. And it's like, that's not what the engineering plans called for. So that's Mm -hmm. what I'm doing on my days when I, when I'm showing up is I'm looking at the fine detail of that construction, because if that second story ever comes down, that's a $3 million lawsuit. Or even just starts to like, you know, nothing's worse than, taking out that load bearing wall and then a year later it's just slumping a bit and it's just like okay 1.2 million dollars in the floor upstairs doing this it's just like Mm -hmm. okay you know because they just it was supposed to be two and not one and so the thing is like is sinking or whatever it just wasn't um attention to detail so that's so that's interesting so you 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 frame out your your projects in like blocks and you because you know it is a little bit of a fallacy that that men can multitask like that. Like apparently, women have the ability to like carry that many things, and perhaps the driving to every project for twenty minutes, twenty minutes would work. Um, you know, if it was a a woman doing it. But when when I find that as a man, it's just like I'm on this rail, and I have to get off and change tracks, and that does take a certain amount of like changing of gears so getting into it staying in it allows you to focus so what about what happened what about what you know let's say you're in the other project and something's going on you have to go over there and deal with it mm-hmm. yeah so this is a lesson I'm, I'm slowly learning i'm not the best at it yet but we talk about this i'm a, a part of another um like mastermind group and one of the lessons over the last month has been nothing's a true emergency and so i've been trying to wrap my head around that because when I get a call and they say, Hey man, uh, we hit the plumbing main, we shut the water off. We need you down here because we don't know how we, I don't really need to be there. What am I going to do? They shut the water off. The house needs to dry out anyway. So with a phone call, I can say, Hey, go to home Depot, go grab five box box fans and dry it out. And I'll meet you guys there on Wednesday. Like we had planned. And Mm -hmm. it's hard because you sit there going, man, I'm paying daily interest of $275 a day on that house. And 350 a day on that house. And so it does add up, but nothing's a true emergency that Oh, it's an emergency to them, right? To them. Yeah. And and I've realized, and my my dad actually taught me this is he went, take how much money you make for an entire year, mm-hmm. divide that by normal hours that you would have worked in a nine to five job and figure out your hourly wage. And if you leaving the project you're on to go fix that is cheaper than hiring, say, a plumber to come out and emergently fix it go 
if when you do that math, you're going to be out at that property for five hours times your wage and a plumber can fix it for 800 bucks and you just call them. Yeah, it's an $800 hit, but you're making say, and this isn't my actual number, but say you're making $1,500 a day based on what you're making annually. Well, it doesn't make sense to go through that. So I've mm -hmm. gotten better at that of when I get that phone call from the other property, knowing it might delay the project, which yeah, in the end, it makes it more inefficient, which drives me nuts. But I've learned to let go of that perfect perfect efficiency and realize you're going to have inefficiency and that, yeah, not everything is an emergency. So I used to pack up immediately and go do that. I've gotten better now. Of the guys on the ground can handle it. It's not a true emergency. Give them directions over the phone and I'll see you on Tuesday or Wednesday like we had planned. Yeah, I always try to re remember, keep in mind that there was a time where we didn't have cell phones and we all survived anyway. You know, yeah. like if it was <laughs> That's huge. Yeah. You know, like let's say it's 1970 something and the water main things, the guys would have just turned it off and they would have maybe used the landline to phone the office and maybe they could have got a hold of you or maybe someone would have driven out to the site, but then they would have made decisions like, is it that big of an emergency for me to drive all the way out and find Nathan at the site? Like, probably not. They probably like the, the I find that the closer we are to each other with the Zoom and the, our cell phones. Um, we don't just take a moment and be like, you know, are the bikes in the front yard? That's probably where the kids are, you know, and then it used to be easier and simpler in a way, but now we're so connected that we're like, it's right, an emergency. Where are the kids? Where, where, where's Nathan? I got it. The water. No, shut the water off. I'll see you on Wednesday. So let's talk about capital a little bit, you know, flipping property. Um, it's good that you got that investor online. What are you raising capital for these days? And are, are you even raising um, capital? Because having a main guy to kind of finance that, are you looking to scale more? Is that why you're looking for more capital? Or yeah, well, know, where, that, where does that fit in? Yeah, the, the main financing I'm getting is a hard money lender. So it's it's not a private money lender. Um, so you still need the 20, 30%. Well, I, I don't. But what I want is rather than having to pay the renovations up front, on my own money and take draws is I've brought private money lenders in how to do that piece. So it used to be that I'd bring them in to do the 10%, 15% down. Um, and a lot of them are willing to do that for mm -hmm. some reason when I phrase it as, okay, here's the deal. Your money's already protected. I've got a hard money lender. That's giving me a hundred percent of the cost. They're giving me a hundred percent of the rehab. I just have to front the cost. So I'm basically looking for gap funding or a bridge loan where I go, if you fund that you're going to get the same rate of return. But you're giving that money up front as a second mortgage, basically, to me. You can mm -hmm. lean against the property that I've got going. You can lean it against lots that I have. I don't care. I secure everything with all of my mm -hmm. private money investors. I always make sure it's a secure promissory note tied with either in Texas, it's a, a deed of trust. That's our, our mortgage security. Um, and so I, I do that. And what I'm looking for is for those people to, to give me the 150000 up front so I don't have to front it. And then that way I can continue to multiply and multiply. The hardest thing in flipping, as you know, if you were doing 12 at a time, I can't imagine doing 12 at a time. Like <laughs> That seems it's, insane it's to small me. Potatoes, you know, like you, you, if you buy them for like a hundred, put in like 30 or 50 grand, sell them for like 179, 200. It's yeah, it is. Um, it is definitely like a stack of things. We just had a rule called one action per property per day. You can't let one go one day. Like sometimes we trust our contractors to think 
but it's just like one action per property per day. Even if it's on market, maybe that action is check to see that you're priced appropriately and that's it and check. So you always just touch everything one day. That's how you deal with more than 10 at a time. Yeah. So the secondary thing though, is I'm sure and, and is you get the cash flow crunch. And so that's what I'm trying to avoid mm -hmm. is you get, you get the influx when you sell, then you're buying the property, shelling out all the money for the rehab and it goes back down again. And then it goes up again and it goes down again. So what I've found is it's from running a business, it's more difficult to keep track when you're, when it's constantly just doing this, like I'm trending upwards. I always am. My bank account gets larger, you know, over the aggregate, yeah, it but it like, just uh, does inflation this. over time. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what I'm trying to do is get it to a point where, yeah, my money might cost me more. The projects might cost more because I'm paying more in financing, mm -hmm. but to get it more linear. Um, and when I can get it more linear, it, it helps me scale because I've got that money available. When the hardest thing in luxury is when you've got three going, and then a home run comes across your plate and you go, what am I supposed to do? This one's got a $500,000 yeah, right now. You're, right now you're funding the renovations with profits mm -hmm. and then getting the draw when you're completed. Exactly. So a period of like, cause a luxury flip isn't um, 50 grand on a one, a uh, hundred thousand dollar house and you know, six to eight weeks of renovation. No, it's probably like, 180, 280, 300,000 mm -hmm. dollars worth of materials and labor and six or eight months. Yep. Exactly. Right? So, so you've when you've got, got three at the same time, capital. yeah. Yeah. Your acquisition, your sometimes that could step on your acquisition toes. What we did is we just would wholesale more so we could always be a little bit flush, but um, you know, which is which is key. For me, I can't because in my market, I'm one of the only ones. So if I'm wholesaling, for me, You'd I don't have that option. I'd be selling it to myself. <laughs> it's me and maybe one other guy that does it. So that, that's what my goal is long-term is if I've got that fund sitting there, it's more of opportunity cost. Yeah, and so you that's have what I'm trying to mitigate. Yeah, you've got 100% funding, but in a structure that has you a little bit cash poor in the sense that you're out, you're putting your money in, which is, you know, normal. And then getting it back when it's done. So you'd, you're you're more interested in like more partners. You want to use the money to build the business instead of in the business. You're looking to exactly. Like, yeah, because okay, cool. if, so, if I have three flips going at once, I can have six hundred thousand dollars out in renovation. And so oh, all yeah. of a sudden, it makes me feel poor. I'm not. I've got all the you know equity in the homes, and when yeah, I sell them, I'll be fine. It's in the but, tile. It's yeah, in the it's tile. in the tile. But I've got six hundred thousand dollars in tile sitting amongst three, four houses. And so mm -hmm. if I can get that private money up front for those, that, that would help scale. And yeah, definitely in Texas, uh, definitely tile. So, um, what, what, you know, like there, there's, there's a lot to talk about, about your story. Cause it, it, it's interesting. At least it's interesting to me. And, and I think people will find it interesting because a lot of people aspire to get into the luxury flip game, give people, if you could, I don't want you to scare people, but luxury flipping is not for the faint of heart. Okay. So if you could give people a little bit of a heads up or something that they can help navigate as they enter the game of luxury flipping, I'd appreciate that. Yeah. So the number one thing, and it's going to seem kind of like a strange answer at first, but I promise it'll make sense is you do everything in reverse with luxury. I need to find my buyer pool first. 
and then purchase homes in that pool, right? So it's mm-hmm. kind of like when you're doing it with first-time home buyers, and that's why a lot of people are drawn to that. They're like, well, yeah, first-time home buyers in this market's 250, so that's where I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar in luxury, right? And so there's a difference that I mentioned earlier where I said what I do is high-end slash luxury, but what I'm not doing are mansions. And there's mm-hmm. a big difference there is I, I said I do 750 to about 1.2. Most of what I do is 750 to a million in my market. Everybody's market's different. That could mean three to four million in your market if you if you're in Florida um, mm-hmm. or if you're in Toronto or you're in a big metropolitan. You know, it can be those numbers are very different. So what I look for is high income earners like doctors and lawyers who are I'm not saying six figures. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about high, high level earners who are making 300 to 600 to a million, like surgeons making a million dollars a year. Close to close to seven figures. Yes. Close to seven figures or maybe right at seven figures, but they have to be high income earners, not business owners, entrepreneurs. And the, there's a huge difference there because what I look for is high income earners that don't have time. And so that's that range for me. If I go into $4 million, $5 million homes, those people who can buy a $5 million home can build a $5 million home. Yeah. They have the time. That's to do the it. tricky part about luxury is especially in the zone slightly below where you're at. Those people are above that 350 mark and they're going to buy that house that you're going to renovate and likely will do it themselves. But then there's that next mm-hmm. bracket where it's like, I'm so busy. I will, you know, if I really don't like the kitchen in six months, the wife is on me, we'll just rip it all out then. But you know what? She likes the one that you did. So we're going to, we're going to buy that. We're going to move in. We're going to bring our little, our little poodle yeah. and we're going to put it in the house. And um, yeah, maybe they have kids, maybe they don't, but a high income in that bracket, typically you can have a, a nice enough finishes and and things like that, that they probably don't have kids do you find that you're having to cater to children in that price bracket at all it's surprising um i've tried to find a trend i track every kpi imaginable i have yet to find a trend in my home buyers other than the socioeconomic stuff so i get retired people that are buying cash at a million million two and it's cash they just don't want to be on their ranch anymore they don't want 40 acres to take care of they want to get closer to their grandkids um, and they buy a house cash for 875 or 1.2 million. Then I get the young tech families who um, husband's making half a million, wife's making half a million as a lawyer. Um, and they do have a family of four and they want something big. They want something luxurious in a gated neighborhood with a community pool or their own pool. So mm-hmm. I get that. I, I It runs the gamut. Um, but I, I'd busy say... Busy is the thing. Busy seems to be the thing. Busy. All, none of them want to do the... They don't want to buy that house for five fifty and do the exactly. six to eight month renovation and deal with the load bearing beam. Like they're at work. Exactly. And every agent, when you're trying to purchase these homes, thinks that that's who they're going to sell to. You, you'll you'll see it all the time. Um, and so the two bits of advice that I'd give, going back to your question, is be patient and stick to your numbers because that's where you get really really burned. There's two places you get burned in luxury when you go all right, I can pay 450 for this property. And you go, they go, well, we got eight buyers lined up. So if you can do five, we'll take it. And you go, well, that only shrinks my margin from 250 to two. 
So but I'll take that's it. The beginning, that's but that's where it starts. Visit, and yeah, and then you go. I'm going to do marble instead of ceramic tile, and then you do. I'm going to do quartzite instead of quartz countertops, which is a slight difference. But that all adds up, and all of a sudden, the 250 went to two, goes to 150, goes to your first price drop, which your first yeah, price drop in luxury is much higher. Yeah, it's not 5K, it's 50. It's 50. And so all of a sudden you hit your first price drop and now you're looking at 100. And now you got to pay real estate commissions on a $100,000 margin. And now you walk away with making 40 and you went, what Which the heck like, went wrong? I mean, still still okay. But what you really, you really nailed it is the fact that, you know, there's deals are like buses. There's another one coming. So mm -hmm. if you, if if they're like pressuring you to go up 450 to 500, you know, like maybe it's just not for you. If you stick to your guns, you'll still be cash ready for the one that comes up next week. You yeah. know, like it's the desperation in the buy. It's the desperation all the way through that ends up nibbling your renovation budget. And then suddenly, because here's the thing about flipping and, and you probably know this very well is like sometimes everybody gets paid but you. Because mm -hmm. everyone else must get paid, and you're the only optional person to get paid. Like the con contractors, they're not waiting around; they must get paid. The real estate agent, they're not transacting that house unless they're paid. The lawyers, they're not doing it unless they're getting paid. So, at the end of the game, and flipping, we're the only ones that are on the, the that are optional. So, a uh, interesting thing because there's a, about the hotel management i want to ask this one last question because we're kind of we're a little bit long but i'm interested so we're going to run it as long as i want but <laughs> um what's the secret sauce you know what what do you feel like your um what comes easy to you that other people might find difficult in this space yeah so i think this is where the hotel background actually you you nailed it <laughs> prefacing the question um, is I am extremely personable and I get highly, highly involved in the sales process. So while I'm there every single day and I'm, you know, doing quality control, every flipper is doing that. You have to, or you're not going to be successful. But yeah. I think what sets me apart is almost every home that I sell, I'd say 80% of the homes that I sell, I met that buyer before we transacted, transacted or before the offer was made. So I'll make any excuse to be there if it's a second showing. I'm there. Like I'll, I'll show up. Oh, I'm, I'm changing a light bulb. <laughs> exactly. I'm changing the light bulb. I'm, yeah, my mentor I'm skimming the pool. He, he I would, show up. Yeah. He and, would and I talk there and try to close. He'd start getting in there and he'd try to like really nail that buyer down. Yeah. I I'm highly involved. And so I, I list most of them myself or through a buddy of mine who I do a flat rate commission with. And so I handle all the phone calls. I'm handling all of that because nobody wants to sell your house like you do. And an agent's like best a developer. Yeah. And an agent's yeah. best friend is a price drop. And I don't want that because that affects my, <laughs> my pocket. So it's like, that's oh, never on the t-shirt. Yeah. Every agent's best friend is a price drop. And so for me, I go, no, I'm going to be in charge of this conversation. So I build the trust. And I think that's huge in this space is you build the trust with that buyer. I give them my cell phone number, even while they're viewing the home. Hey, if you want to get over here and you don't want your agent following you or something like that, I get it. Sometimes you feel like, you know, it's like a little puppy following you around. Mm -hmm. If you want to meet just you and I sometime, here's my cell phone number. Happy to meet you out at the property. Once the process is ongoing, they still have my cell phone number. So when the inspection report comes back, yes, I'm dealing with the agent. We're nailing down what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Um, but then I can have a direct line. I go, hey, look, I understand that this is where this line item came in from. But if I do that, I have to 
tear off the entire outside facade to fix that. So why don't I change yeah. that from replacing that window to I'll put a 10 year warranty on that window. Should it ever leak? I have to fix that. Um, and usually they're like, Oh, okay. So you can get more creative with the solutions. And then lastly, once I close, they still have my cell phone because I want first right of refusal. If that beam does start to bow, I don't want their first call to their lawyer. I want their first call to me. And then they yeah, say, so Hey, Nathan, you're kind of warranting your houses and and 100%. Hand, hands on your houses in a kind of a way a developer would be dealing 100 percent. and when you do that and you built that trust factor those buyers will go you know what we love the house but once we met you and this isn't me toting myself it's by design i'm doing this structure you know for a purpose once we met you we felt way more comf comfortable and confident in the process and because you gave us your cell phone number and we know we can call you guess what? They all call me. They all call me or they all text me. And if it's something very minimal, no, no problem. I'll send my guys out there. My guys are yeah, already working one on of the my tiles projects. Is lifting. Yeah, one of the tiles is yeah. lifting in the hallway. And when right you away. do that, they immediately like, this is awesome. Like, this is awesome. Every time I call this guy, he answers my phone call. And I tell them you get that for a year. And I go, after a year, I'll still get back to you, but it might be slower. It's not going to be my priority. But for one full year, you've got my cell phone to call me about anything. Um, because yeah, if all of a sudden I got flex in a beam, there's a whole second story above it. I'm going to get in there. And if I can fix it for 10 grand, I've already made 140 on the project. Mm -hmm. I chalked that off to another expense line. Now I made 130, but I didn't get sued for 2 million. And that's huge yeah. for me. Yeah. And especially when, when it comes down to as soon as the lawyers uh, get involved, we, we always try to like to transact uh, those, those problems with the property with the owners the new owners like if we can avoid any sort of extra transactional or extra like purple monkey dishwasher they said this <laughs> and then they contact us and it goes back through four people just like yeah i'll, I'll be there yeah. to take a look at that's the so water's funny. leaking yeah you, you nailed it i say that all that's one of my favorite things to say is like remember in kindergarten when we played telephone and yeah, one person starts on this end and I'm on the other end i'm like that's what happens it goes buyer to agent to agent to seller and in that Thing, it starts with, hey, we're not really a fan of the color of the paint in the kitchen. And then on the other end, you get told they hate the paint in the house and they want the house repainted. And that's yeah. not what they said. They said they yeah, didn't like the paint what, color yeah, in the kitchen. That's nothing what they said. It was just like, or the paint is just like, it needs another coat. It could be simple. Yeah. So um, again, like we could go on all day. And and I think people, uh, if they really want to go on all day, they should reach out to you. Yeah. Uh, contact you, get in touch with you. How do they do that? How do they follow you? You'd mentioned uh, you're really active on social. Yeah. So renovate with Nate is my, my handle on Instagram. Um, I put out a lot of content there as well. Um, I've got local real estate meetups and stuff. And my, my goal is always to provide true value. I think there's a lot of people. This is why I really like you guys as well. And I listen to you guys all the time because you guys actually give real value. I mean, you have stuff that you're also selling, but you also give the answers and like, that's mm -hmm. huge to me. And so I do the same thing. I'm like, I'm going to give you all the answers um, and you can email me. It's Shona investments, LLC at gmail.com. Um, and strangely enough, this doesn't scare me at all. I get my cell phone number all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's 760-803-5921. I've done it on, on another podcast as well. Five people contact me, so I'm not scared of it. So yeah, if you I mean, want to call me, call me. I'll talk to you. Exactly. And realtors put their phone number on signs all day. So like, why yeah. not? Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate the time and uh, anyone looking to get into the luxury flip, I think 
there's at least um, five or six gems. You got to drop this episode in chat GPT and have a try and go with the action points here. Cause we, <laughs> we, we were putting on a little bit of a seminar here. So um, really appreciate the time, uh, Nathan. And um, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to jump on my Instagram and check out your reels right away. Awesome. I appreciate so, it. Thank uh, you so much. Yeah, No problem. Until next time, guys, we'll catch you on the next episode.